the top 1% of customers are worth as much as the bottom 50% combined. Whoa. Wow. You're listening to Perpetual Traffic with Keith Krantz, Molly Pittman, and Ralph Burns. Hello and welcome to episode 154 of Perpetual Traffic. Today we're going to be talking about how to figure out how long does it really take to turn a stranger, to turn a user on Facebook or Instagram or one of these social platforms into a customer? Can you run an ad and expect to turn all those into customers that first time or does it take a little bit longer? That whole customer journey. Hopefully we'll find out a little bit about that today. Today we have Scott DeGrossier, the CEO and founder of Wicked Reports, an amazing software platform that's used to help people really measure the effectiveness of all of their channels, all their online media channels. And he's actually been on a previous episode, which is episode 102, talking all about offline events, which that stuff is absolutely probably even more relevant today than before. So if you get a chance, get back to 102 and listen to that. So... After analyzing $1.7 billion in sales and over $400 million in Facebook ad spend, Scott's coming to us with some data with uh, a little bit about what happens. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I was doing this because everyone runs Facebook ads. Well, unless they've got you guys on the bench, maybe. (laughs) But everyone's running Facebook (laughs) ads. And after a day or two, your leads don't generally buy immediately. And so we were trying to figure out a way to help people when it's been a couple days, you're not ROI positive yet. And so if you're looking at your reports, it's not that fun to see, oh, I'm at negative 80%. And so we were trying to figure out how can we guide you with stats along the way without you having to be a data wizard. And that's what led me into this analysis of the 1.7 billion. I said, hey, not many other people have tracked that much, particularly SMB focused sales. And what can I learn to help guide the hey, you should keep running this ad or ad set or campaign or not. And so the facts that came out, the one that kind of blew my mind was how long new leads take to buy. And so we track the entire customer journey and we looked over all the people we tracked, all those 1.7 billion in individual sales. And the average time from the first click to the first order is 43 days. Whoa. Wow. So wait a second. Facebook is not a cash machine. It's not an ATM, Scott. You put in a dollar or your card and just money flows out. No. You have to wait. So that's the average. So half of the people we track is longer than 43 days the first time. And that's just the first order. So the implications of that are you need to have the strategy and messaging in place for the different points in the customer journey or the different mindsets people have when they first meet you versus once to know you, once they're on your email list, once they've seen some of your retargeting, you've got to have fresh, consistent messaging that matches how familiar they are with your brand in order to maximize your ROI. How many different types of industries so people can get a scope? Like what kind of businesses are using Wicked Reports? So the majority of them up until the past month or so have been, they have online sales. They're capturing online sales and they're usually B2C. Now, B2B is actually, well, in my experience, it's about the same because, I mean, we use it, but we've recently had some new features in so that now we can track anything and we can match customers with different emails together. So all kinds of cool stuff. So we can now handle B2B and the traditional way you're using it to get calls and appointments. Like you guys, if you're using ads to get appointments to then talk to Ralph, he comes in and closes them on the deal or, you know, Keith, whoever's the closer. 
we can now filter data for appointments and bookings and doctor visits and all that, but we couldn't do that before. So the 1.7 billion is for mostly pure. I had to buy online. I didn't talk to anyone. Okay. So people that sell digital products, physical products, e-commerce stores from all across the board, right? Lots of different industries. It could be a service-based business. So if you're listening to this right now, it, this pretty much affects everybody we're talking about here. So this is cool. I'm excited. Generally, you got to move people along a path. You know, with Wicked Reports, it's like, hey, you run a Facebook ads. Well, you need Wicked Reports. Well, that may be true, but that's not going to convince someone to buy, we found out. That just gets them to click once and sniff around. We then got to get into our product. Then we got to get them on a demo. Then we got to talk to them differently after that. That's not just click here and buy my stuff because right. people aren't household brands in small business. It'd be different if it's like Walmart selling something super cheap, then they can do that. Because they're spending millions and hundreds of millions of dollars on branding, right? So if you're smart, you can actually combine the two. If you want to use direct response marketing to have measurable return on investment driven advertising, you have to think about using that direct response to help cash flow the branding that you're doing. Because that branding that is going to end up building those audiences to be able to sell via direct response, right? But they might not be a brand new stranger, you know, who saw your ad for the first time. Like you said, they might not even be on your list, but they might have seen a lot of your recent great posts or content that you're amplifying, right? With advertising. Not necessarily just branding, just general awareness. There's plenty of people that buy through our customers and they don't really understand the brand or they're not been branded, but they do understand the awareness of whatever that problem is that they may not have known there's a solution for it. And this product actually does create that. But typically that's multiple touches. You know, as we always say, it's like if there's a hundred people that are coming to your website, maybe 99 of them will not buy the first time. If you're lucky, you can get one out of those hundred to buy the first time, first interaction. And it's typically this journey that has to happen with lots of touch points, which from what you're saying, I mean, on average, that takes about 43 days. If it's a lead or an opt-in or sort of a first click attribution, and then it's multiple touch points after that. So on average, we were just sort of talking about this before we started. How many touch points do people in general need to have before they make that purchase decision? It's a fair amount. We can track clicks only. You know, we're an opt-in tracking service, so to speak, where you have to take an action, then we're tracking it. We're not counting views. And then with clicks, it averages a little over five clicks. So that doesn't include the views or the things you watch on YouTube or the things you view in your Facebook feed that you might read or a podcast you listen to. So it's I feel very confident it's higher than five, mm -hmm. but we see that just incoming clicks, it's usually five little over five and a quarter or so. Yeah. So then knowing that, you know, you've got to have, when you look at these custom audience sync tools and all that, it's got to be some concept of you moving audiences so they see and experience different things because the data backs up. That's what you need to do. Yeah, for sure. If there's one takeaway for somebody who's listening right now, it's if you are just starting on Facebook ads and you've run your first campaign and nothing worked, well, welcome to the club. <laughs> that's typically <laughs> what happens. Your first campaign, you might get... You know, you might test like 20 different approaches and maybe one or two of them really works. So if you've tried it your first time and you've failed in your mind and you're like, oh, this stuff doesn't work and maybe this podcast will help me. This is further evidence right here that it's like not only is the one approach not necessarily going to work, but once you actually figure out what that approach is, and we refer to that as really as a hook that's manifested in the video, the image, the ad copy, the headline, all that sort of stuff, the front facing stuff that you see in your newsfeed. But even that's just a beginning. 
if you can dial that in, then you realize that there's going to be multiple touch points after that. And 1.7 billion in sales under his belt here, Scott's saying it's, you know, five, if not greater touches. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd bet on greater. Yep. Most definitely. You're talking about people that actually take action and click or maybe opt in, yeah. right? And are a warm and they're seeing. Sure. That doesn't take into consideration. This is why video ads are so crucial for branding because so many people listening to this right now are underestimating the positive impact of those video ads. And especially for the people that don't click, because you got to remember, like if you're running uh, high value, long copy ads, video ads, you're, you're amplifying. I mean, this is something that I wrote about in the last edition of the book that we published three years ago and way longer than that. I've always been where you should be spending at least 30% of your budget on pure goodwill or more. You should not be spending more than 60 or 70% of your budget on lead gen. That's something that I've been saying for eight years straight. Now, it doesn't mean when you get started, you, you might spend 100% of your budget on that lead gen because you got to get some momentum. You know what I mean? You got to get something good, create that really good ad, and then start to layer it on so you're not overwhelmed and trying to create nine different ads at the same time, right? But the point is, is that in any given audience, so let's say you have a target audience of 100,000 people, or maybe it's a based off of your interests, or maybe it's a million people based off your customers, your best customers. So you know it's a good audience, but within that audience, there's still gonna be only about probably 10% of the people that are aware of the problem, potentially aware of the solution, but also are fast decision makers. Because remember, a lot of people are not fast decision makers. They need to do a lot of research. They're the guy you meet that feels a little standoffish the first time you meet. Once you earn his trust, he ends up becoming the best friend you've ever had. So you have to remember these people are in these audiences. And so if you have different types of content that are being amplified, whether it has a call to action or not, it doesn't really matter. It does, but it doesn't. You get the point. You have to be branding. And the other mistake I see, Scott, is a lot of people over-engineering this whole process. So you have to engineer it and run it as scientifically as you can. But sometimes people think that, okay, if somebody watches a video and they watch 50% of it and they don't buy, then let's now show them the ad that is like a conversion focused ad, right? Because they're like, oh, they've seen my video ad once. So they didn't buy the first time. So let's show them a salesy ad the next time. No, like let them see that video over and over again and some other content. And I think that speaks to what you were saying a few minutes ago about how people need sometimes 43 days, right? To actually buy. And then it's, it's the different types of content. Old leads don't act like new leads either. I mean, that was another thing that came up and it was a measurement called variance, which means the factor quality of being different. And that measurement said it was over the 2000% difference between what made a new lead on your list buy versus what made someone on your list opt into an ad and then buy. And so that trigger or that like activating of someone submitting an email and then purchasing without submitting their email again, there was a massive difference. And I forget who it was that has the great dating analogy, but it's like when I'm talking to my wife to go do something for dinner, ask her out or whatever, I'm just going to text her or ask her real quick, hey, what are we getting for dinner? But when you're trying to ask someone out for a first date, back in my day anyway, you, you were a little nervous about it. You weren't using Tinder. You had to like go up and like plan out a date or all that crap. They were different. They were new. You had to talk to them differently. And it's the same way with your online advertising. You got to talk different when you're new to someone than when you're old. And the data backs that up tremendously. Uh, and the beauty of that too is that, and this is something that I know isn't even part of these touch points, these five or six touch points, which is 
what we refer to as just, well, it ultimately would be a view through conversion if they actually converted on this, but just interacting with a video, you can now create audiences within Facebook. And this has obviously been something that's been done for the last year or so. I don't know when they actually started doing that, the video engagement audiences, Keith. But, you know, what we're finding is that like 10 seconds and 25% of a video view is like just enough to get people, they are raising their hand and saying, all right, I might not have clicked on the ad, I might not have done anything, but I at least hovered over the video and watched it for 10 seconds, or I've watched 25% of it, depending on how long the video is. Those audiences are great audiences to then put another message in front of, because you've now, like you're saying, it's like it's little incremental steps on the way to ultimately what you want them to do, which is purchase or book a call with your salesperson or whatever it happens to be. But you can take those little audiences that you're, you know, if you are spending 20, 30% of your budget on just goodwill, you can actually capture those audiences and then put either the same message in front of them, maybe in a slightly different way, maybe the same message again, or maybe something that's slightly different and then push them forward down the funnel. And we talked about this and how we do it in episode 145 using the e-commerce ad amplifier. But this is the same for any business. And this is really the same because this is how people buy. This is how human nature actually works. And you're just validating that by all the data that you have. It's like people that aren't like one-stop shoppers. You know, there are very, very few of those people. You said it's maybe one in a hundred that are just impulse buyers. Hey, I'm going to buy this on the spot. What are you going to do with the 99% of your traffic that you've already spent money on? How are you going to cultivate them to ultimately turn them into buyers? And it's a lot of touch points, just like Scott said here, which is really great to have that as a takeaway, especially if you're first starting or if you're doing this for a while. It's like you might be leaving a lot on the table if you give up on those people after the second touch or maybe the third touch. Maybe they still need a few more. The other thing that's so important, and like I said, a lot of people, this takes the brand impact into consideration. So if you're hitting people on a repetitive basis with high value content, even if you have a call to action on it, like we talk a lot about on this podcast, you know, you might have a call to action, like a three-step video ad formula style, but either way, if you're amplifying high value content, guess what? A lot of people see your ad and a lot of people will see that, or maybe even watch a portion of your video or like, even if it's only 10 seconds of it, but they don't really notice it, right? Their subconscious though is taking that in. Your subconscious mind is taking everything in around you, even though your conscious mind doesn't really notice it. Guess what happens when somebody sees your ad, let's say four or five times over a week period or two week period, or maybe 10 times a few different of your ads over a month period of time. And then they don't click on any of them, but they're walking down the street one day and you sell a health and fitness product. And then they like, they all of a sudden they just feel tired or somebody looks at them kind of weird. And they're like, oh man, I need to get in shape. And guess what happens? Either one, they did notice some of your ads. They pick up their phone and they Google your brand or two. What happens is, is the next time they're on Facebook or Instagram or YouTube, they see one of your ads and now they're sort of in that state of mind where they want to solve a problem and they notice your ad and you look familiar to them because they've seen it before. And then they see two or three of their friends that also like that page. That familiarity makes them click. And a lot of times they might buy right away now, but it's because of the branding that you were running. And I'm not saying spend all your money on branding. I'm saying that run ads like the way we talk about, go back and listen to every episode of this podcast, run ads like that. And that's what's going to happen over time. And this is the stuff that builds up over, you know, six months, nine months, 12 months, you start to be tapping into those folks. Now, if you're running purely curiosity-based clickbaity crap, and all you're focusing on is your cost per click and your cost per lead, so you can nurture them in your email sequence because everything you do is curiosity-based. And so you're really just, you're getting leads, but you're giving people that subtle bad taste in their mouth when they opt in. 
out of curiosity, then that's different. You're not going to quite get that same effect. So I always try to think about how is somebody going to feel when they see my ad, whether they click on it or not. Think about that. And this takes everything I think that Scott's talking about to the next level. I like that. Think about how they feel. That's a great idea. So like we're all about trying to reverse engineer your customer journey. But the problem is when you mentioned CPL, like cost per lead people focus on because it's easy to focus on. And plus the math seems to be like, I know I'm going to get this out the back end so I can focus on my cost on the front end. However, if you're bringing in leads that are either crappy or don't spend a lot, then CPL is not a very good indicator of what's going on. And to back that up, this one was pretty shocking. Customers, they have different lifetime values, but the top 1% of customers are worth as much as the bottom 50% combined. So 1% are worth as much as the bottom 50% combined. What can you tell us about that 1%? What does the data tell you about them? Like how much do they spend? Are they repeat buyers? So they're repeat buyers always. And generally they'll be either on a high recur or they want the full service plan. Kind of like you guys in your different businesses, you've got the people that will buy everything you have. They love what you do and they're applying it and they're into it and they're using it. Well, they're worth much more of your time because they're worth more. So your ROI is higher. But also, they're generally not going to be as easy to reach necessarily because you have someone that's making a lot of money or you know you got a high-powered job for whatever reason. You're not maybe all the time on Facebook liking and commenting and jerking around there the whole time because you're off working. <laughs> so they're harder to reach just because there's less availability of their time to catch them because they're busy, busy people out making money. You got to track those people down. What appeals to them, you know, the mindset of a successful person is usually different. You know, so you got to think of what's going to appeal to them versus what's going to appeal to someone that's going to do the $1 tripwire deal or the book-free shipping. Not that book-free shipping doesn't work, but I'm just saying if you're going for the highest value customers, free shipping is not the most compelling thing to them. So for those high value customers, those top 1%, there's not necessarily more touches per se. They just happen to resonate with your stuff or whatever the customer's stuff is better than everyone else? I mean, do they need more attention from a marketing perspective or are they just sort of unicorns on your list? Well, they're the people that you need to then, when you're trying to determine, that's why I like to run things by ROI or ROAS, both basically the same measure, just showing a little different. Because then when there's a massive amount of value from some customers, if there's a cluster of them, your ROI or your ROAS is through the roof for those particular things, rather than doing it by lead count. Like, oh, I only got 75 leads here. Yeah, but four of them are spending 10 grand a month. So just because it's not reaping massive count of success, the value of the success in that area is high enough that you still should spend there. That's awesome. So for a lot of people here, like they might just be starting out or maybe they have run ads. And one of the reasons why I listen to this podcast is to get better at running Facebook ads. So what can you tell us about sort of the average Facebook campaign in general? Like, what can you expect? What does your data show uh, there? Two um, sobering stats. One is that the average ROI is negative 50%. Whoa. So if you lose some money, um, that's to be expected. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other one, though, is even more astounding. This was not from my stat. This was from at the Facebook Marketing Partner Summit I was at in New York recently. The average campaign ROI is 20 times the average ad ROI, which means for every 20 ads, one of them is going to absolutely kill it and carry that campaign ROI. And all the other 19 mostly suck. <laughs> 
Wow. Or not mm. not that they're bad, but they just didn't, you know, they might have been great, well-meaning ads, maybe killer copy, but in terms of ROI, they suck. Yeah. And the, the great <laughs> wow. ones are really, really, really great. So it shows you the testing, how critical. Critical. So we're actually being optimistic by saying, well, if you can hit, if you can bat 300, you're doing really, really well on Facebook ads. Like if you run 10 ads and three of them do well, two are probably more average. So you're failing eight out of 10 times or at least figuring out what doesn't work eight out of 10 times. But you're saying it's really, it's double that. Yeah. Which is sobering to say the least. But those are the really, really high performing ads. You probably have like one that's just crushing. You get ones that crush and you just let the algorithm take over and optimize it. Got it. And I mean, I guess the other thing from all this for the people starting out is just at least sync your email list. And if you're going after cold traffic, exclude your email list. Mm. And if you say, hey, this is something that once people have got my emails, they would really be interested in, then run it against your email list. Even if all the other cool things you can do, that like basic line in the sand of are they on my email list or not is a good way to know they're familiar with you if you're getting all psyched out with all the other ad set stuff. You know, it's really important because we always used to say, well, don't exclude your lead list or your customer list to cold traffic because those guys are going to provide a measure of social proof on your ads. But what we found is that you know, when you're doing stuff at scale, even at like a 2 million person audience, and let's say you've got a list of 10,000 people and a thousand buyers, Facebook will start circling the wagons around the people that have visited your website. You know, are your fans, are maybe leads, people that have all these characteristics of all the different ways which the algorithm sort of circles around the people that are most likely to convert. And what we found, we actually found this in one of our ad accounts, is that we were running cold traffic without an excluded audience, and then cold traffic right alongside it with no exclusions. What Facebook was actually doing was the one that did not have the exclusions, they were going out and finding previous buyers, previous leads, previous customers, and circling and trying to focus their ads on those groups, when in fact the one that, that we did the exclusions with was actually producing new customers. Now there's huge differences in CPA cost per acquiring that, you know, the one that with the exclusions was about double the CPA. But the point is, is that the algorithm's so smart now that if you don't do those exclusions, it's almost like you will be getting, yeah, some people that maybe have bought for you before, depending on the size of the list. But it is important to keep that in mind is to actually do those exclusions. Because if you really are advertising to cold traffic, you want it to be cold. You want yeah. it to be people who don't know who you are, and you have other campaigns for other ones. So what if you added the warm audiences for a 7 to 14 days and then went into the ad set and then added the exclusion after it's been running? So you, you give Facebook more. So you get some like warm people to see the ads. You also have more people in there that are going to convert and like give them that quality, you know what I mean? Give them more a volume of conversions to feed the algorithm so they can optimize based on conversions. That's a cool idea, Keith. Yeah, because you need 50 conversions in a week. So that the optimal spend that I found, you know, you need 50 bucks on an ad set, at least five ads, and then you got to run it for a week for it to start really kicking in with some magic. That's a cool idea. It'd be an interesting thing to test, but think about it this way. After you actually add those exclusions, you're resetting your learning you completely reset it because you're changing something on the ad set level. And then Facebook basically will discount that learning from the first seven days. That's the Uh, only issue with it, but it's definitely something worthwhile to test. So whenever you change anything, you've got a live campaign, let's say, and then you add, let's say you're, you're advertising to 18 to 45 year old males. 
And after a week, you go in, after you're running that, you're like, oh, I'm seeing all my conversions are, you know, men 30 to 45, but the ones that are younger aren't buying at all. So then you go and you change that age grouping to 30 to 45. What you'll see is on the ad set level, it'll say ad set, you know, learning reset. So you will reset the learning there, and then it'll have to go out and find in your in your new targeting a new group of people that are potential converters for you. So it in theory it should work, but remember, I'm like Facebook really does learn in seven day increments according to what everything that they tell us. Same. So yep. it'd be an interesting thing to try for sure. But I would test it because a lot of times they say stuff like the previous data doesn't count, and we know just looking at practical situations where it's like only at the ad set level, but then you're like, you're looking at situations where they have to be taking more of that into consideration. So the algorithm is so smart. So that's just something you have to test. You know what I mean? The other thing that Scott, when the one out of 20 thing, how you guys have found that like one rock star, one absolute crushing ad out of 20, this is something that I preach a lot in terms of people that say, I tried video ads or I tried Facebook ads or I tried Instagram story ads and they didn't work. Or I tried this objective, right? I tried optimizing on brand awareness or, you know, whatever it is, and it didn't work. It's not because it didn't work. It's usually because you probably didn't get the message right. In most cases, when it comes to anything, as far as just winning on Facebook or winning with video, it's, it's always down to that, the message and offer. Or sometimes it's maybe, maybe you didn't test enough. Maybe you didn't let it run enough. So this is why I love this episode because I feel like so many of us and I, I'm included. A lot of times it's like, we can only do so much. We might have a client, we're running their campaigns and it's like, we'd like to test a million different things, but sometimes we can't, we got to just focus on getting our stuff done. Right. And so you have to weigh those options of your time and being able to execute and how big your team is. But at the same time, don't be making decisions based off not enough data, super important there. So the other thing is that shameless plug the book, third edition, ultimate guide to Facebook advertising, best-selling Facebook advertising book on the planet. Chapters 14 and 15, I go basically what you're talking about here. It's all about like that perpetual build a flight plan, build yourself a blueprint of multiple different ads based on people's journey, value-driven, awareness-driven, conversion-driven, retargeting. And you can get that for free plus shipping, even though we just said that's not the best thing if you want to nurture people. But I'll give you a couple other three resources. What's that URL again? The URL is dominatewebmedia.com forward slash perpetual. Go to that and you can get the book and it's like $5.95 shipping. It might be more by the time you watch this. But also, if you want to go check out the funnel, we're, we're getting a 17% sales conversion on cold traffic right now to that sales page. So if you want to just dissect our funnel and see something that's absolutely crushing it, and we're getting about a 20% take on the trial, which is a $100 to $300 a month trial on the thank you page. So we, we kind of know what we're doing over here when it comes to funnels. But you can go check that out, or I'll give you a phone number, and I'm going to give you two episodes on the podcast to go listen to as well. You can also go text PERPETUAL, the same word, at 425-230-4398. Once again, the number is 425-230-4398. Save that as a contact. Save that as Keith Krantz, because anytime you want to text something, I do something, it's always going to be the same number. So text PERPETUAL, I'll send you a link to that. Also, episodes 132, where I go over, I call it the BCS triangle. And what that is, is it's a simplified version of chapters 14 and 15 in that book. It's basically branding and goodwill, that top 20 to 30% of your budget. And then it's conversion-focused, education-based ads for 50 to 60% of your budget. And the bottom is your retargeting, focusing on sales, sales-driven 
and product-focused messaging. And that's really just a simplified version of chapter 14 15. And then one more, episode 145, Ralph went over the e-com ad amplifier. Okay, and what this is, is it's basically a super ninja systemized process if you have an e-commerce business. It's not only like a strategy, which mine really takes you through, but if you have an e-commerce business, his takes you down to like what objective you should use for each level, what KPIs you should be looking at and all that stuff. So go listen to episodes 132, 145, and then go check out the book funnel at dominatewebmedia.com forward slash perpetual. The idea is that, you know, yeah, the, the algorithm works. It needs time. It needs some data. And so with these data points in mind, you know, you work on your messaging in these different pieces and then figure out a way to kind of move people through that because it's, it's how you're going to get the most bang for your buck. But yeah, the message is key and being able to test a bunch of versions of the message is a must. As much as I'm a data guy, without the message, it really doesn't matter. Data can't fix that. So the sad news that you had in that statistic was the average Facebook ad ROI is negative 50%. Did I hear that correctly? Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you've just got some really bad advertisers inside Wicked Reports. Is that it? No? Yeah, well, no. I mean, you got X amount of campaigns. It's kind of like the campaigns. It's kind of like with the ads. One out of every 20 ads is going to murder it. And it's the same way with the campaigns. You're going to have some duds and then you're going to hit big on some. Think about any account you guys go into. The bigger advertisers, you know, this is like 50 to 100 campaigns. Like my Infusionsoft, I have like yeah. 200 campaigns in there. You know, you get you, and then the only ones that are still running are the ones that keep producing. Otherwise, I move on and try something new. I think that's words of encouragement for people that they're going to fail 19 out of 20 times to find their best ad. <laughs> but no, seriously, it just sort of underscores the fact that I do really think that people don't test enough. And even Facebook has admitted it that, you know, the platform itself doesn't have a great ad testing mechanism right now. It just doesn't. And there's lots of ways in which you can do it. The Michigan method is one way in which to do it, but there really needs to be like a really good multivariate testing tool on Facebook, knowing full well that you really should be testing about 20 different ads, at least, especially to cold traffic. You know, and I mean, we typically will start with anywhere between 10 to 15, but that's just because you have so much audience overlap, if, especially if you're trying to test a lot of different ads to the same audience. And if you maybe do it the Michigan method way, where it's like one ad per ad set, those ads will eventually just peter out. And sometimes you may not even get to statistical significance. So just keeping that in mind, like if you're running one ad, and one audience, or maybe two ads and one audience, and you're not getting the success that you want, that just means you need to test more stuff and limit your downside risk as much as you possibly can with moderate budgets. But the data proves itself out here through Wicked Reports that you gotta keep testing at all times. Episode 71 is the Michigan Method, episode 71. And, and if you wanna go to the show notes, we'll have links to all this stuff at the show notes at digitalmarketer.com forward slash podcast. This is episode 154, 154. So this is good stuff, Scott. I'm glad because obviously this is something that we're passionate about. And I think the key is to understand that it just takes a long time. So you gotta have stuff out there that is continually building that trust with people. So is there anything else that uh, you want to add or where can people find out more about you or your amazing software or anything like that? So you can find out about us at wickedreports.com. And what we've done with all this 1.7 billion in data is baked in the insights into the tool so that you can compare yourself against benchmarks real time. So if you're running a campaign and it's been eight days 
you can say, how have I done in the past after eight days? How have I done against other businesses of the same size in eight days? And how have I done against all of other Wicked Reports campaigns ever tracked in eight days to know if you're better or worse than average based on what you're trying to do? You can say, I'm doing new lead gen, or I was retargeting, or I was just trying to get people to buy, and it'll automatically reconfigure the attribution and stat markers so you know whether you're doing better or worse than average for what you were trying to do. And so this will really help people because, you know, when you're running an ad, it's complicated sometimes to figure it out. And so this way, we're going to be able to give you guidance along the way. Are you doing better or worse than normal? And then you can iteratively improve yourself with the guidance of your own data. Really cool, actually. This is cool because we covered some, you know, art stuff here on this episode as well as the science. So if you're, uh, you want to go check it out, go check that out and we'll link to it over in the show notes. Other than that, this was awesome having you on. And until next time. Good time. Wasn't as fun as last time where we went out after and had a nice, <laughs> nice late night. <laughs> you and Ralph were at a concert, right? We were at a concert the night before, and then we went down and cut the episode. Yeah, we couldn't even hear that day after Metallica either, so that was uh, amazing <laughs> that we actually got an episode out. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Foo Fighters in July at Fenway for me. Are you? I might be going to that. I saw them last time at uh, Fenway. It was amazing. Loved it. Yeah. Join us at Foo Fighters and at Fenway in July, me and Scott. We'll Foo Fighters would be sweet. <laughs> awesome, dude. Thanks for coming on. This right. was great. And you didn't really even do a whole lot of Boston accent on this one. I was kind of... No? No. Shocked. I should have had dude. it. Dude, you got to ramp it up a little more. <laughs> You've been listening to Perpetual Traffic with Keith Grant, Molly Pittman, and Ralph Burns. For more information and to get the resources mentioned in this episode, visit digitalmarketer.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening.